0: You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Folks, it is time for another week of Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Today, I am going to introduce you to a gentleman by the name of Todd Edwards. Now, for those of you that hang out with us at our Bride Tribe Advances, which we are calling them from now on, and also the Fireplace Church. You will probably be familiar with Todd Edwards. He is one of the leaders at Bride Ministries, and while he isn't on this podcast with me often, he has been with me one other time on the podcast. He also has a biweekly study that many of those that come to the Fireplace Church also attend. And, well, after you hear this, you'll probably want to attend. So make sure you're at the Fireplace Church this Sunday so you can get the details. Now, uh, Todd has a really cool history, uh, none of which I'm going to bore you with right now, but I'm going to introduce you to the man, my friend, Todd Edwards. Welcome back to Discovering the Truth with Dan Devall. Awesome.
1: Thank you, Dan, and thanks for having me. Uh, Looking forward to it and i think if you don't mind i'll just go ahead and start talking about history and some of the aspects of christ and instead of maybe having a dialogue back and forth um i'll go ahead
0: and speak but please interrupt me if there's anything that you want me to focus on that's all right that is what we have you here for todd folks get ready because todd is going to take this program to break some really cool things down for us about Uh, the birth of Jesus and so much that I didn't even know until we learned from him just the other weekend. So Todd, the floor is yours. Great.
1: All right, everybody. Yes, this is the, the season where most of Christianity celebrates the birth of Christ. And we all know the stories from Matthew. We know the stories from Luke. So today we're going to focus on maybe some aspects that you've never heard before, including needing to set the table for the time in history that Christ was born. So we know from Isaiah 61, uh, verse 2, that there was going to be two comings: His first coming and His second coming. And during His first coming, we want to talk about a couple of things that set the course, uh, set the, the table for history. First of all. The very last word given by the prophets in scripture before Christ's coming came from the book of Malachi, about 400 years beforehand. And everybody that knew the scriptures was anticipating that a king was coming, that there would be a messenger sent before the king in the spirit of Elijah, and that a king was coming, and that he would set the world right. That's what they were anticipating. And then there was this 400-year drought. Now, there was a lot of activity in Judea at that time, but there was not a prophet recorded in Scripture except for 400 years prior to the time of Christ in John the Baptist. So that's one thing that we need to keep in mind. Second thing that we need to keep in mind was during the the time of Christ's birth in the temple, the ark wasn't there. It had disappeared. In fact, at the time of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon coming in to destroy the temple and to take the judeans captive it's recorded in second kings chapter 25 all the details of the artifacts that he took from the temple and you cannot find the ark so the ark of the covenant the table of showbread gone also for about 550 years so now you have no word from the prophets of god for 400 years the ark of the covenant is not in the temple anymore And there's even another thing that people need to understand about the timing to all this, and that is Ezekiel saw in a vision in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23, that the glory of God had moved from the place where the Temple Mount was over to a a mount on the east, the Mount of Olives, where Christ eventually was crucified. So you have these aspects of what was going on in the temple area, no ark, no glory of God, and also no word from the prophets. In addition to that, there was a struggle amongst the priesthood. So if we back up in time a little bit and think about the history of the priesthood, there was established a Melchizedek priesthood before the book of the law was established. Then after the Exodus 32, uh, fall with the, the, the golden calf, a Levitical priesthood was established. That Levitical priesthood was then parsed a couple times over history. Uh, Levi then had, uh, there was two, two frames of Levi. You had Ithamar and Eliezer, and the Eleazar line was typically the high priest line. Eventually, during the time of David, that produced Zadok, and the Zadokites became the high priest. So now you fast forward all the way to the time where the Greeks then took over the land in Judea around 250 BC up until about the Maccabean period, about 160 BC, you had what's called Hellenized priests. And what that means is they were Greek um, ordained priests, not ordained by the Levitical class, but Hellenized priests. Now, why is that important? Because the priests that played ball or collaborated with the Greeks, were not the Zadokite priests. It was from the Ithamar line, the line that was not supposed to be the high priest line, and they became Hellenized. So what happened to the Zadokite priests? They were actually run out of town because they did not believe that they were following the law, and those Zadokites became the zealots. Those zealots went to take all the scrolls that they had and all the scripture scrolls that they had and went into the Qumran and they, that's where you have the Qumran caves and the Dead Sea Scrolls were found because it was the Zadokite priests that hid them in the caves. So you had this battle between priest lines as well. Eventually the Maccabees take over these Hellenized priests and you have an establishment of another type of line, the Maccabean line of priests. So why do I say all that? Because there's just all kinds of chaos and and lack of direction, and they're not following the Bible, and they're not hearing from God, and the glory's not there, and the ark's not there. And that's the setting, but there's more. Most of you probably have not heard that the Roman Empire, during the birth of Christ, had an equivalent rival. And that rival is the Parthian Empire. And the Parthian Empire, we don't read about uh, in the West because we always get Greco-Roman history. And history comes from his story. And typically, history is written by the victors or by those that are in control of our textbooks. So we don't know very much about the Parthian Empire, although a lot is written about the Parthian Empire. And I want to start off by reading a quote from a 19th century British historian uh, that has done extensive writing in in the Middle East in a number of these types of empires named George Rawlinson. He said this, the picture of the world during the Roman period put before students in the histories of Rome was defective, not to say false in its omission to recognize the real position of Parthia as a counterpose to the power of Rome a second figure in the picture, not much inferior to the first, a rival state dividing with Rome the attention of mankind and the sovereignty of the known earth. Wow. So the sovereignty of the known earth between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire, and the Parthian Empire was its equivalent. He goes on. Writers of Roman history have been too much in the habit of representing Rome as a universal monarch having no other limits than those of the civilized world, to the present writer, meaning him, George Rawlinson, the truth seems to be that from the first to the last, there was always in the world a second power, which is a true sense balanced Rome and acted as a counterpoise in a check. This power for nearly three centuries between 64 BC and 225 AD was Parthia. So when Jesus was Born, we know that Judea was under Roman rule, but Rome had a rival, kind of like during the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union. There was a rival. There was a major rival with the Romans. The the Parthian Empire was enormous in the East at that time. It extended about 1,900 miles, 1,900 miles from east to west, from the Euphrates River, which was the border between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire. All the way to the Indus River in India, in modern India. It was also about a thousand miles north to south. So an enormous empire. Backing up in history a little bit, uh, when the Greek Empire came about and Alexander the Great came into power, who, by the way, was prophesied in the book of Daniel, comes into power, takes over that whole area. After Alexander's fall, as prophesied by the prophet Daniel, it's broken up into four kingdoms. The kingdom of the Grecian Empire that was over Judea and this, this area that we now know as Iran and Iraq was the Saludians. That was the division of four that was over Palestine, Judea, all of this area. The Saludians then took over that entire area and over the course of time, around 250 B.C., this group of what we now know as Parthians started to revolt. And they fought against the Saludian Empire for freedom. And they won their freedom. And for about 100 years, going back and forth, this Parthian group was battling the Saludian Empire, which was formerly from the Greek Empire. They eventually won their freedom. And I know this is a lot of history, but this is going to make sense when we dig into the scriptures. So they eventually won their freedom. Some of the highlights of this, and you'll you'll hear you'll recognize some of the names, including in these battles going back and forth. In one hundred and sixty four BC, the Parthians defeated Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Seleutean king of the Greek Empire. So the famous Antiochus Epiphanes that was prophesied, it was the Parthians that killed him in battle. And in about 129 BC, the last kind of big push by the Saludians to go against the Parthians, Thrades, who was the king of Parthia at that time, defeated over 300,000 Saludian troops. I mean, talk about battles. These, these guys have massive amount of numbers, and the Parthians were going back and forth with the Saludians and finally just wiped them out. And it weakens the Saludian Empire so much that it allowed the Maccabees, to revolt from the Saludians. So the Maccabees wouldn't have been able to revolt unless it was the Parthian Empire pounding on the Saludians and finally defeating them. So the Maccabees revolt now in 160 BC, and all of a sudden you have the Maccabees take over these Hellenized priests. So all of this is happening. Now we kind of fast forward a little closer to the time of Christ. Rome and Parthia now are at odds right around the Euphrates River. And that's kind of the border. And there, there's there's this give and take taking place. A big battle took place in 53 BC where the Parthian king destroyed Crassus, who was one of three leaders in Rome, destroyed his army. 45,000 troops get wiped out and Crassus is killed. He's made fun of, he was an elderly general, but he, he was taken over. Rome pushes back. And he put, they push back with another famous character that you all know, Mark Antony. Mark Antony goes against Parthia. First opportunity takes in 120,000 troops, gets wiped out, scurries back home to, to Rome with about 60 to 70,000 troops. Right, we think about the Roman Empire as being so strong and being unidominant, but you have the Parthian Empire kicking their butts in the east. So Mark Antony comes back. And he he gets wiped out. Because of this revolt, the Parthians decide, we're going to now push into your territory west of the Euphrates. What's west of the Euphrates? Palestine, Judea. So from 40 BC to 37 BC, the Parthians actually control Judea. This is the same generation that Christ is born into. So people like Zechariah and Elizabeth, Who are older they remember being under parthian rule and now they now they're under roman rule so these are the same folks that understand all this this is going to be real important when we see who the parthians then are so finally mark anthony tries to push back again and once again he 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 gets defeated and also kind of interesting is the famous roman standard the eagle on the pole the Parthians capture, and the Parthians hold the Roman eagle until 20 BC. Now, we don't have a, a, a real United States standard like that, but it's almost as if when Israel had the Ark of the Covenant and the Philistines took it. That's kind of what Parthian Parthia did to the Romans. They took their eagle. It was a national embarrassment. And this is all about 20 years before the time of Christ that it's even returned. So everybody remembers this. Pontius Pilate remembers this. Herod knows about this. They're all afraid of the Parthian Empire because of this. So keep all of that in mind. So now, who really are the Parthians? What is this group? Well, we read in 2 Kings 17.6, That when Assyria comes down into the northern kingdom, some of the northern kingdom are transplanted into media. And media is modern uh, Iran, and that's kind of where the heart of the Parthian empire is. So you have a number of Israelites that are immediately transplanted right into the Parthian kingdom. But that was happening 700 BC. Now they're still remaining. They're still in that media area. Also, there is this name Parthia and number of kings named after the same name. Pharaz, Pharaz. P-H-R, and then sometimes it's double A, T-E-S, sometimes it's T, sometimes it's just S, sometimes it's Z, but it has the same root Hebraic spelling as Pharaz. Where do we get that name from? Well, if we think back to Judah, Judah had twins, Faraz and Zerah. And the kingly line that Christ came from was Faraz. So if these names are the same, and it's all throughout the Parthian history for like 500 years, even before they became a great empire, you had these names Faraz all the way through. It could be, and I'm not saying that it is, but a lot of historians believe that right on this, think that this was part of the descendants of the pharaz line that was in the northern kingdom that then gets planted into Parthia. What we also find in Parthia are a whole bunch of different names of uh, cities. Like uh, I, read, I wrote down a couple of them that I, I uh, read through. In Parthia, you have Gaza. You have Samaria. You have Carta. You have the name Asak or Isaac. All throughout there, the biggest cities are very interestingly Hebrew names, Hebraic names. In fact, their main uh, military fortress on a mountain was named Dera, which comes from a Judean king, a Judean line of of Dera. Uh, They also used, the Romans had the Roman calendar based on the sun. The Parthians had a lunar calendar, and their lunar calendar actually started in the spring. Same thing with the Hebraic calendar. So there's a lot of similarities that are are interesting. The way Parthia was set up uh, is you had a king over a number of vassal states that were also kings. And he was called, the Parthian king, was called the king of kings. Also fascinating. Then you had two ruling bodies. You had the royal house, which was always the lineage of the king. So the Parthians had a king by blood lineage, but it didn't have to be the firstborn. It just had to be bloodline. So as you can imagine, there was always kind of, there was always feuds going on and people killing each other's families. But you had this royal house, which was a govern, governing body. The other governing body was called the magi. And the magi were priest-like. They were in charge of the religion of Parthia. The Magi were also the ones that appointed the next king from the royal house. So the Magi were the priests, the Magi were a ruling body, and the Magi were the king-appointers. So you guys are already starting to hear and feel how this all kind of fits together. What's also interesting to me about who they are is what the Jewish, the famous Jewish historian of that time period, during the time of Christ, Josephus wrote. And this is what he said about this group east of the Euphrates. He said this Where there are but two tribes in Asia and Europe subject to the Romans, meaning Judah and Benjamin. So you got Judah and Benjamin are subject to the Romans. He goes on and says this While the ten tribes, <clears throat> excuse me, while the 10 tribes are beyond the Euphrates until now and are an immense multitude, not to be estimated by numbers. So the Jewish historian Josephus said, yep, we know where two tribes are, and then there's a whole bunch of other tribes of Israel east of the Euphrates. Now we know that the tribes got scattered all over the world, but there's a big cluster of them hanging out east of the Euphrates. Well, who's east of the Euphrates? The Parthian Empire. So we have a lot of interesting things going on. Let me share one one other thing about this. Um, uh, Jesus also said for the disciples to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 6. Peter wrote his epistle from Babylon. In 1 Peter 5.13, when he finishes his epistle, he says, And all the brothers in Christ that are with me in Babylon greet you. So Peter actually fulfilled Jesus' assignment saying go to the lost sheep by going to Parthia, because Babylon was in the Parthian Empire, and Peter is now evangelizing and spreading the kingdom of God to the Parthians. So there's all kinds of interesting history. James writing, uh, James 1.1, to the lost houses of, of Israel. Why would he write to the lost houses of Israel? Why would Jesus send them to the lost uh, tribes in the house of Israel if they didn't know where they were? They knew where they were. Josephus knew where they were. A lot of them had, had, were in the Parthian Empire. Okay, so with all of that said, now let's dig into scripture. From, chapter, uh, uh, from Luke chapter 1. And we'll start off with uh, verse five. Now, there were in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah, of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments, and ordinances of the Lord blameless. This gives us a whole bunch of indication of what I just shared with you in terms of history, what was going on. First of all, you have Herod appointed as king of Judea under Roman rule. Now Judea is butting right up against the Parthian Empire. So his job is almost like on the outskirts of the empire to make sure that everything goes well and to keep the peace. Now, he's trying to keep the peace with one of the most difficult cities to keep the peace, of course, Jerusalem. But that's what his assignment. Next, you have a priest named Zechariah. And Zechariah, it says, was the, of the course of Abiah. Now, that means nothing to you and I unless we dig into what the course of Abiah means. When David instituted the priestly, uh, priestly plan, yearly plan for all the priests to minister before the temple, he divided the priesthood into 24 families. Abia was one of them. And we can find that in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. So Abia was one of them. Each family of priests would then minister in the temple for two weeks. So over the course of a year, you have 48 weeks assigned. And then the last couple of weeks were assigned to a priesthood family or two. And every year... The, the family of Abia under the Levitical priesthood would minister. So, if we know that the beginning of the year started in the springtime, right after they, right before they started Passover, Abia's course was the eighth course or the eighth rotation, which means he was doing weeks 15 and 16 of the year, which puts him, Zechariah, now ministering in the temple right in the middle of summertime. So we have a timing phrase to it. We also know that Zechariah is a true Levite and is actually a descendant of the Zadokites. So he's actually a Zadokite priest. Then we know that his wife, Elizabeth, is of the daughters of Aaron. Now, what does that mean? She wasn't, her father really wasn't Aaron, but she came from the lineage of Aaron. Sometimes when we read in scripture um, the begats and the families of, they don't necessarily give all the details of every single father going down the line, but they may get, give a, a detail of you're a son of Abraham or you're a son of Judah, meaning your lineage comes from Judah, your lineage comes from Abraham. In this case, Elizabeth's lineage comes from Aaron, also a Levite. So you got two Levites, two priestly families. And by the way, Aaron's first lineage comes from Elizabeth and we're also named Elizabeth. We got two Elizabeth's in the Bible. We'll talk about that in a second. So we got two Levite priests. Who do they eventually get born? Who do they give birth to? John the Baptist. Now, if in that time you had the Maccabees as priests and the true Zadokite priests that should have been the high priest are out in the Qumran caves. Where do you think John the Baptist eventually goes to? in the wilderness, to the Zadokite priests. In fact, Paul, in Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus during his conversion, he was going to arrest the zealot Zadokite priest because the road to Damascus led to the Qumran caves. So you truly have a true high priest in John the Baptist who eventually baptizes Christ. Keeps going in verse 6. And they both were righteous. And that term in the Hebrew, Zadik, also indicating that they were Zadikites before God. So a lot of information is put there in those first two verses. Now, if we pass forward now and get into a couple other timing elements, in still in Luke chapter 1, but in verse 26, we have this said, and in the sixth month, now what sixth month? Elizabeth's pregnancy sixth month. So, if she was pregnant, got pregnant, right after Zechariah left his course, and that's what the scriptures say, six months later puts us right around our calendar end year, like around January 1st, December 31st. So, right in the middle of winter, that's the six month mark. The angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man. Whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. So now we we clearly know that Jesus of the house of David, which is also of Judah, and this is happening in Elizabeth's sixth month. It keeps going. The angel says, "Mary, you're going to have the Holy Spirit come upon you, and you will have Jesus born of a virgin." So this is six months now into Elizabeth's pregnancy. If we keep going. There's something that uh, I wrestled with and I really didn't understand until until recently. So we'll keep going. Luke chapter 1, we'll jump ahead to verse 36. And behold, now this is the angel talking to Mary, your cousin Elizabeth. She has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. So let's stop there for a second. Jesus then is conceived by the Holy Spirit right around the beginning of our calendar year. If you project now nine months, that puts him into the fall of our calendar year. We also know that he is called Emmanuel, which means Elohim or God, tabernacles with us. And one of the fall main festivals is the Feast of Tabernacles. So Jesus actually came to tabernacle with mankind in our approximately ninth month, or the fall, which is the Hebraic seventh month. John the Baptist, three months later, after the beginning of our calendar year, puts him right around the time of Passover. That gives us kind of the timing all there in Luke chapter 1. Now, the other thing that I didn't really understand for a long time, how can Elizabeth, who's a Levite, and Mary, who's a Judean, be cousins? I mean, I get we're all cousins. We all came from Noah's kids. We all come from Adam and Eve. Clearly, Mary and Elizabeth, they come from Shem, but we don't necessarily call each other cousins. I mean, they were cousins' cousins. How did that happen? we got to take a look at Jesus' lineage. And we'll just show this real briefly, um, just to show just a little bit, because you can actually go into a lot of detail uh, about this. In Jesus' lineage, if we look in Luke chapter 3, there's a couple of kings that need to be mentioned that actually had Levite blood. The first one, uh, Luke chapter 3, I turn to Luke chapter 3, this is teaching live on the fly, Daniel. I meant Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 7. You have this guy named Abijah or Abbey. And if we go back into 2 Chronicles 13, 1, it says that Abijah had a mom who was a Levite. So you have Levitical blood. In Jesus lineage. Matthew 1 9, there's another guy here, and that is Joachim. If we go back and look at his mother in 2 Chronicles 27 1, his mother was a Levite. We got a third example, Matthew 1 chapter 9, we have Hezekiah. Achaz begot Hezekiah. If we go to 2 Chronicles 29 1, hezekiah's mom was a levite so we have judean and levitical bloodlines intermingling in fact this happened even right from the beginning if we look at exodus chapter 6 verse 23 we have aaron who is going to marry a levite and i'm skipping over a whole bunch of scriptures what's the point of this why is this a big deal Because Jesus comes as a different kind of priest. He comes as a Malki Zadik. Malki meaning king from the kingly line of David in Judea. Zadik, the priestly line of Levi. So he takes both fulfillments of the law, both king and and priesthood, puts them together and is a new priesthood, the Malkitsetic priesthood. All of that in the bloodline back to Luke lots of stuff going on so back to Luke Luke chapter one uh, with Zacharias prophecy is one of my favorite portions of scripture because it just it speaks of the the entire gospel message all there in a few verses Zechariah, Luke chapter 1, verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled, John the Baptist's father, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying, saying, blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, he's saying this with John the Baptist just being born and Jesus being born six months later. He's already having a prophetic word that Jesus is the one to come that's going to redeem his people. And this is really the first prophetic word ushered from this temple since Malachi, and there's no ark and there's no glory. This is astounding all the people that Zachariah is now coming forth, because clearly he saw an angel, and everybody knows this. It was muted, and now all of a sudden this prophetic word is announcing the coming of the Messiah. This ties right back to Malachi. So now all of the land is saying, oh, we're about to get a king. We're about to get freed from the Roman Empire. We're about to get freed from everything because they're all expecting a king. And he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David and spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. I mean, can't you get a feel of everybody just rejoicing the king is about to deliver us? That's what he's prophesying. To perform the mercy to our fathers. Mm, Maybe they didn't catch that part, because the mercy means a covering of sins as a priest. And to remember his holy covenant, which means the law is about to be wiped out, fulfilled, wiped out, and now it's going to go back to the covenant promised to Abraham. The oath which was sworn to our uh, father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. See, they operated in a spirit of fear all the time. They constantly had to commit animal sacrifices to temporarily cover their sins. So this was an enormous prophecy that we could actually go before God without fear. Remember, when the priests went into the the, the temple in the inner inner court, they would put bells on their legs. The priests were afraid if they weren't completely clean, they might die in the presence of God, and then they'd have bells on their legs with the rope, and they'd have to yank out the dead priest. That doesn't seem like a very fun God to worship. So they had this spirit of fear on them all the time, which was not the same spirit of fear we operated in a healthy way. And then he prophesied to his child, John, and you child shall be called the prophet of the highest. Again, fulfilling Malachi and tying it together. For you shall go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Beautiful, beautiful passage. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. So what he's saying here is John the Baptist is going to prepare the way. And that's what he was doing in the wilderness, in the Jordan River. How so? And this is why John the Baptist was so radical. Only the Levites could be priests. But under the Melchizedek priesthood, everyone can be a priest. So he was baptizing everybody. Can you imagine how mad the priests must have been? How mad the Pharisees and Sadducees must have been at John the Baptist? What are you doing? We thought you were the chosen one to go before the Son of God coming. And you're doing this? We don't get this. Aren't you supposed to prepare the way for a king to defeat Rome, and yet you're, you're making a bunch of priests out of people who shouldn't be priests? but that's what John the Baptist's message was. So now we fast forward into Luke chapter 2 and Jesus' birth. They went to the inn, no room at the inn. We all know the story, and he goes into a manger. Why into a manger? Well, again, we need to know the setting and what's going on around the temple time. Bethlehem was known as the place where the lambs were born and shepherded. They would be brought through the sheep gate to the city of Jerusalem and people would take their Bethlehem lamb as sacrifices. Not only for the one lamb of years, the Passover, but this is where a lot of lambs were located right by Jerusalem. So if you're living a hundred miles away and you're coming to celebrate in Jerusalem for a feast and you want to offer a sacrifice of a lamb as a Thanksgiving offering to God, You don't bring all of your lambs with you. You don't go back and forth with all of your cattle and your sheep and your goats. You travel there. You leave behind your flock, have some overseers of your flock. You go to Jerusalem and you go to the local lamb market, which is in Bethlehem. You grab a lamb and then you offer that as a sacrifice. So here we have Jesus being born in the place, in the city where the lambs are shepherded or they're raised and being born in a location where lambs are born in a manger, clearly signifying he's a sacrifice and he's the Lamb of God. The shepherds also are witnesses to this because they're the ones that were chosen by the angel to come and to worship him immediately. Shepherds representing coming to worship the Lamb of God in the sheepfold, in Bethlehem, known for their lambs. The house of bread. Bethlehem is called the house of bread. And bread means the word of God. And here we have the lamb of God, who is the word of God, being born in a place where the lambs are born. Keep fast forwarding to Luke chapter 2. Another beautiful picture of two witnesses. Simeon and Anna. We have a prophet and we have a prophetess, male and female. And beautifully, God created us, male and female, to have his fullness. When we come together, we have more of him together. Likewise, when he is about to witness the dedication of himself as his son, he has two witnesses a male and a female. And it would not be the same if it wasn't. Now, Jesus is dedicated on the eighth day, and yet he was also baptized by John the Baptist. So for those of you that want to get into baptism, try to reconcile that. What's the difference between dedication and baptism? Because Jesus did both. But I just want to mention that you had two witnesses, a prophet and a prophetess, that witnessed Jesus as the salvation. Let's jump ahead now to Matthew chapter 2, because there's one other piece here of scripture that now we're going to tie this Parthian kingdom into. Matthew chapter 2, when we have the Magi, verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came Magi, From the east to Jerusalem. What's east of Jerusalem? The Euphrates River. What's east of the Euphrates River? Now we know it's the Parthian Empire. And we know the Magi were royalty. They were the kingmakers. They were the priests. They were the ruling class in Parthia. We have to keep that in mind. They are saying, verse 2, Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. Where is he that is born king of Judea? For we have seen his star in the east. We saw it in Parthia. And are come to worship him. How did they know that a king of Judea was supposed to be born and they followed him into Bethlehem? These were not some pagans worshiping all false gods, although the Parthian Empire was not a clean empire. It's not like they were worshiping our one true God, Yahuwah, and were waiting for his son, Yeshua. There was a lot of paganism in there, but there was a knowledge of our Old Testament in Parthia. They knew the scriptures. They knew the time, according to the book of Daniel. They knew that he was going to come from Judea. And they also knew that there was this moving star, moving star from the east that took them all the way to Bethlehem. And they came, think about this, they came to anoint a king. So if the Parthians really had some type of Israeli, uh, Israelite influence and the tribes were there, and the kings were all named Pharaz. From the kingly line of Jesus and the kingly line of Judah, they were anointing a king. They were anointing their cousin. He was a rightful king, not only to the Parthian Empire, but wherever he was supposed to rule. And remember that they had just ruled over Palestine 40 years previous. Now, if they're royalty coming in, are they three guys on camels sneaking in in the dead of the night looking for a king? You would never do that. We don't send out our president. We don't send out our senators without secret service, without a lot of bodyguards. Now imagine them going across the desert, across barren plains where all of the robbers and the looters are going after people. There's no way they went with three people only. And we know this because here's the next verse in, chapter, in verse three. When Herod, the king, heard of these things, heard of what things? The Parthian Magi coming. He was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. What's going on? We have Magi coming from a rival empire. There has been fighting back and forth, just 40 years before the Parthians ruled Judea. Just 20 years before they finally gave Rome their golden eagle back. Herod is responsible to Caesar to make sure that the treaty of truce that they had along the Euphrates River was maintained. Herod didn't have a whole lot of power over the Roman Empire. He was just a puppet right there in Judea. And now here comes the kingmakers probably coming with legions of troops, not only to protect the Magi, but protecting all of the treasure that they're bringing. If they're coming to anoint the king, they didn't come with one tiny little gold coin. That would be disgraceful. They're probably coming with treasure chests of gold, vials and vials and vials of myrrh and frankincense. And if you're coming with that kind of treasure, you're coming with troops, lots of army. But you're coming in to the Roman Empire who you have a truce with, unannounced. No wonder Herod is troubled. And they're saying, Herod, oh, by the way, we got a king that we're looking for, and we're going to put him in charge of all Judea. No wonder he's troubled. But notice he also is not rebellious. I mean, wouldn't he say if he was actually powerful enough or there wasn't this this tension between Parthia and Rome to just take these magi and he's got plenty of troops, knock them out? He didn't because there's so many troops coming with the Magi, and he can't be seen by Caesar as instigating another war. He's stuck in a bind. In addition, the whole city of Jerusalem knows what's happening. It's not like the whole city recognized that there were three little guys coming in in camels. No, a whole invading army was at their doorstep. Everybody is troubled. Even though they might have enjoyed the Parthian rulership, They do not want war. No one wants war. That's what's happening at the time of the Magi. And the Magi anoint Jesus as king. So clearly, he must be freeing them from the Roman Empire as king. So as they were expecting Jesus to come as king the first time, they actually got him as a priest and a priest to reconcile us back to God. The second time he comes, I think a lot of people, especially in the Middle East, are expecting a priest, and that's why they're rebuilding the temple. Instead, they're going to get a king, the king of glory. There's one other thing that I want to share share with you all that I found fascinating in, in the studies of history regarding this time period of Christ. And it's not the time of his birth. But as he then comes into the scene with ministry, there's dialogue that's recorded in history between him and a Parthian king. And I'm, I'm going to read some excerpts from it that I think you'll also find fascinating about this. So there's a legend that a Parthian ruler or king, King Abgar of Edessa, and this is a city in Parthia and Mesopotamia. And he carried on this correspondence with Jesus during his ministry in Palestine. And this is what William McBrinney relates as the legend. The legend has come down from us from Eusebius. Now, Eusebius was a very famous Christian historian right around the middle third century AD. This legend tells us of a correspondence between, get this, Jesus and King. Abgar, king of Edessa. eusebius that's not Edessa like Odessa, meaning in Russia. This is in Mesopotamia in the Babylon area. Eusebius claims to have seen this correspondence in the archives of Edessa and has translated it himself from the Syriac language. Now, Eusebius was a famous Christian historian who lived uh, around 260 A.D. to about 300 A.D., and this is what the Encyclopedia Britannica writes concerning Eusebius. Now, who's this Christian historian? I'm building up. And you guys are going to see this. Eusebius was one of the most learned men of his age and stood high in favor with the Emperor Constantine. Eusebius's greatness rests upon his vast erudition and his sound judgment. He is best known by the History of the Christian Church. This compilation of of, uh, of uh, writings completed around 324 AD. Okay, so that's Eusebius. This is what Eusebius wrote down. This is about an exchange between King Abgar of Edessa in Parthia and Jesus Christ. When King Abgar, the brilliantly successful monarch of the peoples of Mesopotamia, who was dying from a terrible physical disorder which no human power could heal, heard continual mention of the name of Jesus and his unanimous tribute to his miracles, he sent a humble servant request to him by a letter carrier begging relief from his disease. Eusebius writes on. He says, this is the letter, Agbar, to Jesus who has appeared as a gracious Savior in the region of Jerusalem. Greeting. I have heard about you and about the cures you perform. If the report is true, you make the blind see again and the lame walk about. You cleanse lepers and raise the dead. I concluded that you are either God and came down from heaven to do these things, or you are God's son doing them. Accordingly, I am writing you to beg you to come to me, whatever the inconvenience, and cure the disorder from which I suffer. I may add that I understand the Jews are treating you with contempt and desire to injure you. My city is very small but highly esteemed, adequate for both of us. So we have the king who is sick, acknowledging that he is either God the Father or God the Son, but acknowledging him as God. He's hearing about Matthew chapter 10 and Isaiah 61. Heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out demons. He's acknowledging all of that. And he's saying, I know you're king. And even though my city's not super glamorous for you as king, come and hang out with me if you want. Because I'll be co-king with you. I have no problem giving up my kingship and ruling with you. Just come and heal me. Eusebius writes on. He now records a response from Jesus to the King Abgar. This is Jesus' words by Eusebius, our Christian historian. Happy are you who believed in me without having seen me. For it is written of me that those who have seen me will not believe in me, and those who have not seen me will believe and live. As to your request that I should come to you, I must complete all that I was sent to do here, and on completing it, must at once be taken up to the one who sent me. When I have been taken up, I will send you one of my disciples to cure your disorder and bring life to you and those with you. Amazing. Now, I'm not saying that that is absolutely true, but it it sounds like Jesus' language. It's just fascinating history that that dialogue took place. And the reason I'm bringing it up now is because it has to do with the Parthian Empire. And we also know that later, history tells us that the Apostle Thomas was sent to the Parthian Empire, thus fulfilling what Jesus apparently wrote to King Agbar. And we also read from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, that Peter wrote from the Parthian Empire. Fascinating. I'll leave one last thing with you guys. In Acts, again, going back to these Parthians and the timing of the birth of Christ and who this empire was. In the book of Acts during the days of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, we have a listing of all the people that came to worship in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 9 says this, of those that came. Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites, and the dwellers in Mesopotamia. That whole group, and those are the first listed, were all part of the Parthian Empire. So you had Parthian Empire citizens coming and going in Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. And the Parthians also received the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And this is the rival kingdom, rival empire, to the Roman Empire. All of this is taking, t- taking place during the time of Christ. So Daniel, I hope I covered a few things that maybe some of the listeners haven't heard before of the time of Christ, including a little bit of a history lesson. As you know, one of my favorite places in my mansion in the heavens is the library and i love to go in the library and the holy spirit pulls off the books on the shelf and we go and we spend some time together and even during the night he may give me a download of history and then he puts all these things together and i'm like oh you're so good (laughs) so i share with you
0: a little bit from the library of heaven amen i I, i'm telling you what that is just so rich Mm -hmm. And, folks, now you know why we have Todd speaking uninterrupted because all my questions would have done was slowed him down and made y'all upset at me. Like, why are you interrupting him, Dan Duvall? Just stop talking, you know? But, Todd, we just appreciate you. And, folks, until next time, God bless and Godspeed. You've been listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. If you would like to connect with us at Bride Ministries or to support what we are doing financially, visit us at www.bridemovement.com.